This edition of Monocle on Sunday was first broadcast on the 1st of May 2022 at 10am CET. Monocle on Sunday, in association with Heston's. Around 20 civilians have succeeded in leaving the besieged steelworks in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. They are the first group to leave since Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the vast industrial area to be sealed off. Putin reportedly told troops to block off the area so that a fly cannot pass through. Thousands of people are expected to take the streets of France today as part of the annual May Day protests. It's a week since President Emmanuel Macron was returned to power in the country's elections, but there are warnings that there'll be resistance to his pro-business reforms, including a plan to push back retirement age. New Zealand's borders are reopening to foreign tourism today. Vaccinated visitors from 60 so-called visa waiver countries will be allowed in, subject to COVID tests. A woman had to be airlifted to hospital and two others were injured after an angry cow escaped from a cattle transporter in the Swiss city of Zug. The cow dragged a 32-year-old man for 20 metres and knocked an 81-year-old man over and inflicted serious head injuries on the woman who was flown for emergency medical treatment. The cow was eventually shot dead after running along the promenade across the Landsgemeindeplatz and through the old town. And 14 passengers were forgotten by their airline and left at the departure gate at Palma de Mallorca Airport yesterday afternoon. The passengers were ready to board the Ryanair flight yesterday, but there wasn't enough room for them on all the buses out to the aircraft. It was only when one person checked online did they realise that no more buses were coming to fetch them and that the plane was already in the air. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. It's time now to head to Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich to join our editorial director, Tyler Brule, for this week's Monocle on Sunday. Tyler, good morning. Good morning, Emma. No one missed the bus where you are. No one missed the bus. <laughs> no one's flying Ryanair either, for that, for that matter. But... Um, yeah, anyway, I think we should focus on Zug because uh, Christoph Munger is uh, going to be speaking to us. He's joining us uh, today, of course. He's he's in charge of the foreign desk uh, at the Tagus Anzeiger. But I believe that story was brought to your attention uh, from that esteemed newspaper. So uh, at least their bovine uh, correspondent is on the case uh, in, in and around Zug. I find they, uh, you brought my attention, drew my attention to this story yesterday for for which I'm immensely grateful. Um, but what I absolutely loved was that not only did you get the story about this clearly quite catastrophic incident in the middle of Zug, but the fact that the Targus Anzeiger was ready with a backgrounder to talk about when cows suddenly lose their, their marbles and then and then just run off. And there's this glorious picture of an angry mother cow um, in Obersachsen. And I just want to know just how deep does the Targus Anzeiger dive when it comes to incidents like this? This is a question. question for Christoph. Yeah, well, we'll come to Christoph a little bit uh, later. He's going to ponder that as we get into the start of the show. Uh, Emma will uh, be chatting to you in a little bit. Monocle on Sunday starts now.
Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up today on Labor Day here at Dufostrasse 90, my guests are Emily Isohau and Christoph Munger. They'll share their views on the week's biggest stories. Emily is here at the table with me this morning. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning. What have you spotted in uh, maybe the local papers, regional papers, maybe even the Finnish papers this morning? Um, so Finland and Sweden continue getting closer and closer to announcing their decision to apply for NATO membership. So we'll have the latest from both sides of the Baltic Sea. And if we have time, we can also talk about what the British Prime Minister um, meant when he flagged out of creating a Britzerland during um, the Swiss President Custis's visit to London earlier this week. Very, very good. We all want to live in a Britzerland. Uh, <laughs> our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will also bring us a view from London, maybe Paris as well. And we head to Austria to check in with Reiner Novak, editor-in-chief of Die Pesse, to find out what's making headlines in Austria. Plus, we'll be joined by our Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be chatting about Golden Week in Japan and our upcoming book event in the Monocle Bureau in Tokyo. More from Fiona a little bit later. It's the 1st of May, 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from now sunny uh, Zurich. It was a little bit uh, cloudy, overcast. It could be a bit warmer uh, for May 1st. Uh, nevertheless, I'm very happy to uh, welcome my guest to the program. You heard the voice of uh, Emily Isohau at the start of the program. He, of course, he's program coordinator uh, for peace mediation at ETH here in Zurich. Also, Christoph Munger is also here. He's head of the foreign news desk at the Tagus Anzaga. Good morning, gentlemen. Very nice to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Christoph, uh, well, before we started, uh, Emma was talking about the story about the cow that went uh, a little bit uh, crazy uh, in in Zug. Sort of a, a perfect a perfect Saturday story. Uh, but there, there are many other things uh, to to discuss uh, today. And maybe we should just kick off before we head over to London to talk to Andrew Tuck. Um, two things. Maybe, Emily, if we jump to your part of the world, to the other side of the Baltic, to Finland, a lot of discussion, of course, uh, in and around. Uh, will it be a yes for Finland, of mm. course, uh, to, to put in its application to join NATO? Mm. Uh, and also a lot of things, of course, swirling around because there's been a question mark, a bigger question mark over Sweden um, as well. How's it playing out? Um, it's playing out in an interesting way. So I, I think just to be 100% clear, I think it will be a yes from both sides of the Baltic Sea and it will happen um, relatively quickly, in fact. So we um expecting the decision to be made um, in Finland after a parliamentary review of a security report that was published a couple of weeks ago, sometime in mid-May, perhaps the week of uh, Monday the 16th. Um, during that week, the parliament and the government would announce um, their decision to apply. But in terms of this dynamic between Finland and Sweden, um, Finland has always looked to Sweden for guidance, if you will, at least indirectly and unofficially, whereas now the tables seem to have turned. So it's rare that in Swedish media you see Finland mentioned in almost every other sentence. And that seems to be the case, because for Finland, of course, NATO membership has become more of an existential issue, whereas in Sweden, perhaps it's still more along the ideological lines. And, and, and they very much um, are following Finland's example and, and perhaps surprised by the speed with which Finland is seeking membership. Um, quite likely in the coming weeks. So Sweden, Sweden is in a way getting their act together as well. And the Prime Minister Andersson um, has also announced that they don't want to prolong this process and they have elections coming up in September. They don't want elections to be all about NATO membership. So again, Sweden is likely to follow Finland. Um, now politicians on both sides are um, talking about whether it'll be a day or two um, in between and we'll see. Um, but mid-May is the likeliest timeline for both countries. And just quickly, what will the process be? Because often 
oftentimes when we see such landmark decisions, of course, confronting a nation, certainly something like this, does of course it won't be maybe a land of sort of uh, Swiss uh, referendums, but uh, nevertheless, how, well, how quickly can it can it move, and, and what will those steps be? So there's the formal side, which is actually very simple. So in the Finnish case, the president could decide today to send a letter to Brussels um, saying that we would like to seek membership and then that would prompt the start of the accession negotiations. And then eventually the parliament, parliament at the end of those negotiations would get to vote on the final membership. Uh, however, more politically, um, it's important to have a democratic process in place. Therefore, Finland um, is having a parliamentary committee review process on the security report that was published a couple of weeks ago. So every committee, every party gets to say their um, thoughts on this and, and only then the government, um, so the prime minister together with the president would make the final decision. So of course democracy is a value what the Finland and Sweden would both in a way defend within NATO. So therefore they want to also ensure that there's a democratic process. But also that say if governments change in five, ten years, um, that the decision remains on both sides of the Atlantic. Christoph, how uh, closely does Switzerland watch this story? And of course, you're running a news desk Uh, at, of course, one of the newspapers of record in this country. Of course, and, and, and there, there's value in that. But also, there is the topic of neutrality, because this is, of course, a position which has long been held, of course, in a slightly different format uh, in, in Finland and Sweden from Switzerland. But nevertheless, there is a hallmark and a foundation, a bedrock of neutrality. So how closely is Bern also watching this? Oh, we, we've been watching this very closely, of course, because of the issue of neutrality and uh, the, the debate about Swiss neutrality is, is about to heat up in Switzerland. Uh, in, in the Sunday papers, we have uh, distinguished elderly historians uh, who, who talk about uh, neutrality from a historical point of view regarding Switzerland. However, I think uh, Swiss membership in NATO is out of the question. Uh, it might they might decide to move a bit closer uh, to NATO. They talk about uh, 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 military exercises they could conduct together with, with uh, NATO states. That would e that would already be a big step. But I don't see that that Switzerland is about to join NATO. However, um, the, the the question is uh, what, how do Swiss Uh, the Swiss see their neutrality at the moment. Um, I mean, neutrality is part of a DNA, as one of the historians says, part of the DNA of of, of Switzerland. And uh, uh, but uh, it's it's always it's like a myth. It, it's not always real policy. It's some sort of a myth because uh, it's overestimated. Uh, but in the pra practical way, um, as we see it at the moment, they they they, they use it in in different forms. For example. Uh, from a neutrality, neutrality point of view, it's out of the question that they can join the sanctions, but uh, delivering weapons to Ukraine is, is a completely different story. They are bound, legally bound by the 1907 uh, agreement from Haag, and um, that's, that's still important. And from a po political, I mean, they, they now even look back, for example, uh, neutrality is important from a dom foreign policy point of view, of course, but also from a domestic point of view. If you remember World War II, it was important to stay neutral because Switzerland uh, has two parts, basically a French-speaking part and a German-speaking part. And at the time, uh, there was a danger that it could drift apart because the, the French-speaking part supported the, the French and the German-speaking part 
about uh, supported uh, Germany. And in World War II, it, it was some sort of different. I mean, after the fall of France in, in, in 19, May 1940, uh, Switzerland was completely surrounded by, by the Axis powers, and then they basically didn't have an alternative then uh, to, to uh, go into uh, business relationship with, with, with Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany, on the other hand, they tried to also to, to, to sell weapons to, to Great Britain, but of course it was uh, because of the geographic situation more difficult. So today uh, there is a big discussion. There is now uh, one politician from the Green Liberal Party, that's the middle ground party in Switzerland, he proposed that Switzerland should be allowed or should decide to, to sell weapons to democracies in Europe uh, that are attacked and they are defend uh, their country on their soil as Ukraine at the moment. However, then you get into problems. What is a democracy? Is Turkey a democracy? Is Hungary still a democracy? Uh, or do you support the demo democratic forces in the Syrian civil war? Uh, so uh, he got quite a lot of critic this critics, uh, criticism, this politician. Uh, but uh, I think it's an important contribution to the discussion that's going on now. Mm. I want to bring in uh, Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, uh, is in London. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Tyler. So what, watching this uh, story from, well, not, not so far, uh, but if you look at the papers, of course, uh, in, in the UK and what is ticking across screens um, at the moment, Andrew, uh, of course, there is, there is this story. We've seen a commitment, of course, over the last week in terms of what that will mean in terms of material, military aid, humanitarian aid still going into to the Ukraine. Uh, and then, of course, a, a series of other stories. I'm if I'm looking at the monitors here in, in the studio, uh, a lot of focus uh, on, on a porn scandal as well <laughs> that is... Uh, that is swirling around uh, Parliament too. Uh, yes. So, well, on, on the bigger question, let's, let's just do that first. And you're certainly here. The UK government is is being even more strident in its support of Ukraine, and perhaps backing up the US position that it, it believes that this this has to be seen as a, a proper defeat for for Russia and especially for for Mr. Putin. So. That there's a willingness here to now say that we'll be supplying fighter jets and, uh, and all sorts of things going into the country. So let's see what happens. But the, there is a on the armament side, there, there's definitely a, a huge commitment from the, the Johnston government. But what's interesting is, you know, he is in a very, very difficult position. You know, we, we go into local elections here this week on Thursday, and I don't think that anybody thinks that he's going to do very well or his party is going to do very well. A poll this morning say, suggesting that if there was a, a general election today, that the Labour would be swept past. Some 57% of people now saying that they would vote for a Labour government led by Keir Starmer. And that's a huge turnaround. So it comes off the, the back of so-called Partygate. And now we have this, this new scandal, which is a, a Tory MP who's had to resign yesterday. This is Neil Parrish, who was watching pornography, and he watched it twice, apparently, uh, in the House of the Commons, once during a debate while, while waiting to vote. And, of course, it, it's, it's taken a slightly comical uh, twist because he said that he ended up watching the porn site by mistake. He was looking for a tractor site. And it was uh, the, the tractor site and the porn site apparently had very, very similar names, which is a bit confusing. Do you know what those I names did, might I, be, Andrew? Well, <laughs> you can rely, rely on me, Tyler. I had a look. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I found out there is, there, is a, there, is one, there is a site called Hello Tractor, which sounds quite sexy, doesn't it? It is very. 
<laughs> there's HRN tractor, which could be like horny tractor. So I thought maybe yeah. he, he was like looking for a horny tractor. Turns out, which we won't go into too much detail, there is in sex there is a tractor position, which we we don't don't imagine that too much if you haven't had your breakfast yet. And there is there is also a whole genre apparently of farmer porn, which involves tractors as well. So I, the, he may have made a, a, a very easy mistake, Tyler, for us all to make when we're looking up tractors. You can uh, easily uh, end up absolutely. in the wrong place looking at the wrong kind of story. I, I almost feel that we need to bring our Emma Nelson uh, in on this, but we'll do that uh, in in a moment. Well, maybe we can do it now because we are, we're one week on from, uh, of course, uh, well, the, the, the arrival of the results from, of course, the French uh, president, presidential uh, elections. Uh, our Emma Nelson, also Tom Burgess Watson, uh, were on hand for a very special edition uh, of Monocle on Sunday uh, last week. Uh, Emma, just uh, Andrew and I will be chatting a little bit as well about a great backgrounder that we had, uh, probably, well, 48 hours on from that. Uh, But just uh, looking back over these last seven days, this position of just getting on with government, the mechanics of bureaucracy now, uh, but how did it it feel? Because we had some very nice uh, photographic moments from you uh, in front of the Eiffel Tower, Emma. Thank you very much. God, Tyler, I thought you were going to ask me about tractors for one moment. I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to say apart from muck. Um, So in the last week, we've seen a lot of jostling. If we just look at some of the papers this morning, the Figaro is talking about how uh, the left is split. And then you look at France 24 and they're talking about how the right is patching up and making friends. Uh, Eric Zemmour, the firebrand, and Marine Le Pen are pulling together. They've got this a terrible problem in in France that, yes, we have a, a leader who's diving into a second uh, term, but at the same time, he has to pull together incredibly disparate and fractured party uh, parts of the of the of the government. And no one knows how this is going to happen. Everybody is absolutely in the dark here. One thing is certain, though, is that there wasn't an enormous amount of enthusiasm. You, you know, you mentioned the pictures of me smiling my head off in front of the Eiffel Tower. I was probably one of the few who was smiling. Uh, simply joyful to be happy to be there but there wasn't a real sense of party down at the um, Macron rally people were just kind of relieved a lot of people quite strangely hadn't voted for Macron but were accompanying spouses loved ones families friends to the rally a lot of them had spoiled their, their ballot papers but one thing that you really get in Paris now and I'm sure you and Andrew can talk about this uh, with in great detail is the fact that every quarter feels as if it is lifting up we were in a in the 10th arrondissement north of Republique in the last few years when I used to live there it was not a place that you'd even think of going to not that it was particularly dangerous it was just a quarter that wasn't interesting. Now you turn around the corner and you have APC there. You have all the beautiful, lovely shops, tiny boutiques, small French businesses setting up on their two feet and making Paris work wherever you are. And it's an incredibly walkable city as well. So once you've got that, you really do have a handle on a city that knows that has a really good sense of purpose to it and excitement. And I want to just bring up this piece because, Andrew, maybe this is um, a good transition to a conversation that we had with someone who was working very closely with the Macron camp, uh, of course, uh, not just on on this past campaign, but the campaign before as well. But there was a piece um, that's running in in the NZZ this weekend, but it actually, it's uh, it's from the FT originally, and I think many people have seen it, and the headline is, Why do the French always whine? 
Uh, and, and the Stanford says in France, there is a widespread perception that the country is in decline. Uh, it's going well economically, but the French suffer from past greatness. And this was a bit of a topic that we, we touched on because, again, it seems like off, off the back of so many uh, elections at a national level, uh, you know, and, and this was the conversation we had, Andrew, was that, well, you know, is, is, does, does Macron really have a clear mandate? And it's like, well, given the numbers, y- yes, he does. Uh, within a democracy, it, it was a clear win. But also sort of fac- fascinating, though, that there's this, this sort of this hand-wringing that's still going on. Yes, and we, we, we asked the, the person we met a, a, about this, about how the French see themselves, and, and he thought it was down to something that was so embedded into the, the French political system that it was always fractious, it was always a bit self-destructive, it was always tearing itself up, and that actually it meant that you have these m- manoeuvring voters going back and forth across political lines. Join, you know, and you have to remember that you know, Macron's party was invented by him. It's a, it's, a, it's a new party that's winning a second election. And that actually it's just so hard-baked into French life and politics, this idea that everyone's going to rebel all the time, that it's very difficult to get any consistency in, in government policy. Now, the person we met is obviously a, a, a big Macron supporter, but I thought what was also just fascinating here is somebody who'd worked with him for many, many years and who, who knows him pretty well. He was saying that, you know, that part of the problem with Macron had been the storytelling, the, the getting out the, the, the information about what he thinks and does, and that actually the, the notion of him as being aloof and detached and not un, unthinking about what was happening in the country was, was, a, was a misreading of him. So he was quite positive that actually, although the president, nobody in the country wanted to be popping open champagne corks on, on that night, there was a, a moment for reflection that actually it could be a pretty good presidential run, obviously he doesn't have to stand again, and that he had taken on board much of, uh, much of the criticism that had come his way. There is certainly a mood of, of, of positivity, uh, and well, you were part of it. I, I was cert- certainly part of it as well. I think we can also say that we're very happy that there is a, a Macron uh, government uh, that will continue and, and offer stability, not uh, just for France, but uh, but Europe in in general. But uh, Emma talked about the well, the, this sort of this subdued sense of of not quite euphoria, but just uh, that there was this confidence and this, uh, this this notion really that it was going to be a, a solid status quo. But there was a certain sort of magic around Paris uh, by by midweek. And I'm not sure if that had to do with a, a fantastic lunch that we had in the 19th uh, arrondissement, or, or maybe there was more to it, Andrew. Well, let's start with the Chanel HQ. This is an HQ for the for the metiers, for the people who, who make crafts, who make beading and, and hats and, and all of these things that Chanel has bought un, under its wing and, and supports some 600 craft people working in this, in this one building. And you, you, know, you cross over the highway, it's, it's not in the center of town, but you walk through the front door and first of all, there's on, on the ground floor, people from the local community are coming in to work on projects. There on the, on, and how amazing just to see so many people coming in to, to use the space. And then we, yeah, we went for lunch, what's, what's modestly called a canteen, but it, is, is, it felt more like a, a, a great restaurant. And just hundreds of very young people all involved in thinking about design and craft and making, all working there in the same place. And people from every background and yeah, amazing. So there was a buzz there that I think we picked up on, on, on for the day. And then, you know, Paris in, in summer sun, or the first glimpse of it, is, is pretty perfect. And, and we, everybody we met 
maybe it is because of this 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 relief at the, how the election had gone they were just settling down to getting on with things. So, so there, there felt a real kind of like back to work buzz wherever we went. And we should say that we were uh, in uh, this, this, of course, this facility that you described, Le Disney Femme, which is the, the atelier uh, for, uh, well, and, and a very grand one at that for all of, uh, for many of the, the makers and craftspeople for Chanel, but this will also be the backdrop for our, our conference. So it was, it was interesting walkthrough because we, we were assembled with 11 other colleagues uh, in Paris. We did a a proper walkthrough um, of the space. And I think something which it'll probably move the meter because this will be the, the seventh edition or the seventh outing uh, for our, our quality of life uh, conference uh, series uh, as well. And it was, it was, it was, I thought it was an interesting combination, Andrew, as well, because as you said, on one side, you just had this, this great sort of feeling of, of momentum. Uh, but also, you're also, there's, there's also the sense actually the Olympics are not far around the corner now as well, because you, there aren't a lot of cranes, but there is that sense that also something else is bigger coming down the track. Yes. And, and all of these ideas, this, the, you know, the, the, the value of craft, you know, we, we have, uh, Bruno Pavlovsky, who's uh, the president of uh, Chanel, SAS and Chanel Fashion, he's going to be there talking about the building, talking about the value of craft. But we also have uh, Ton van Herven, who's been on The Urbanist before, and he's building the only significant piece of architecture going up for the games. This is the, the new aquatic centre in Saint-Denis. And it was fascinating because he, he believes, you know, that this is a, a piece of um, infrastructure that isn't about swimming in the end. It's, it's about changing the neighbourhood and, and giving opportunities to people who don't have such access to a sports facility. And again, he's, he's, he's upcycling furniture for the space. He's, he's thinking about all of this, these notions of sustainability. So what's great for Paris is also that the, the games, I think, there'll be a modest games in many ways, but they will also be a, a way for Paris to kind of show leadership on all sorts of fronts that have nothing to do with sport. So yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna be fascinating to also speak to, to him at the conference. And Andrew, just maybe quickly of the, of the main themes, of course, you've highlighted one of them, which is which is urbanism, which is, of, of course, legacy and certainly legacy around around the Olympics and, and as it applies to, of course, a city like like Paris. But if if you maybe scan the list of, of, of well, not just topics, but also people who are coming to speak, what, what stands out for you? This is this is your sort of, you know, one minute pitch as to as to why we might want to see or, or certainly see and uh, and have a few more listeners uh, around us uh, come June 2nd, 3rd and 4th. To see a different side of Paris, I think, as uh, as we were hearing there the, from uh, the, 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 the debate about how you use Paris has changed. People are using places way out of the center now and understanding they have value and, and bringing value there. So I think it's, it's, a, 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 it's a rethinking about Paris that you'll get. You'll get access to incredible people. The debate about how you make good communities, how you make a better high street, how you make a better place for you to raise your kids will all come to the fore. So you know, we, we, we're going to be talking with um, Catherine Gustafsson, who's one of the, the great kind of uh, public realm green space thing because she's doing the park around the uh, the Eiffel Tower she's going to be talking about that so I think that people will come away 
with a, a moment after this, these last couple of years when cities have been closed and shuttered and, and troubled, where they can fix in their mind what they need to do for their, for their home, their street, their community, their business, their friends. And I think that's going to be super important. And I think also there'll just be a lot of fun because we're, we're going to make sure that there's an understanding of the, the art market, of entrepreneurship, about opportunities to invest in Paris as well. So I, I think it's going to be... I think it's going to be the best conference we've ever done. And we have potentially one or two names we're not going to reveal just yet on, on, the, on the list that will uh, perhaps uh, rather surprise people. Absolutely. Those will be probably revealed, I would imagine, in the next 48 hours. And of course, we should disclose, Andrew, as well, that we uh, we also uh, did. We didn't do a proper test, but we, we certainly walked the floor of uh, what will be a fine setting uh, for the uh, the Pitti Discotheque as well that will uh, that will happen. Uh, Andrew, uh, we're going to leave it there. Have, uh, have a lovely Sunday. Uh, I've got to Christoph and, uh, uh, of course, Emily is here. Maybe just before we head to London for the news, very quickly, I'm going to give you 45 seconds, Emily, for uh, what else has caught your eye uh, in, in, in the papers? So let's go quickly to Britain. Um, so a visit that was maybe, <clears throat> maybe um, overshadowed by um, a parliamentary visit to Kiev um, by Swiss parliamentarians. But the uh, Swiss foreign minister, Ignacio Kostis, and the current president of the Federal Council uh, visited London earlier this week on Thursday uh, and met with Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who uh, famously said by now, as we are both outside the EU, let's create a Britain land. Um, but so the topic they discussed was the um, free trade agreement to be negotiated between the two countries, two European countries, not members of the European Union. So an important bilateral relationship to be watched, uh, particularly on research. So they two countries have in a way been kicked out of the EU horizon um, research program. Um, so very important. But um, Cassis was also um, uh, welcomed um, to the Windsor Castle on Thursday, uh, which is not so common um, to happen. So this was also um, published in the Swiss media. And apparently the Queen was extremely well prepared in good health. Um, of course, the contents of their meetings um, are not discussed, but we did find out through the Swiss papers that Cassis will take, put the picture uh, of the Queen and him and then his wife on top of his couch. So um, interior design as well. Absolutely. <laughs> important, important news for, uh, for a Sunday. Uh, Christoph, uh, maybe just before we go to London for the news, uh, anything from you? Yeah, first of all, uh, he even said, Swiss president, that it was one of the most important moments in his life, uh, meeting the Queen. But I would like to shed some light on, on the story my, my colleagues broke uh, in, in the Sunday edition uh, of Tagesanzeiger Sonntagszeitung, and because they found out that uh, uh, they were found out that P Putin has two sons, uh, not twins. I mean, the, the, the story, uh, there was a lot of rumor about, about those children, uh, and even one of those sons uh, was born in Lugano in Switzerland uh, and the mother is Alina Kabayeva, uh, famous sportist, gymnastic uh, uh, woman and uh, the second son was not born in, in Lugano but in, in, in Moscow be, as they found out uh, because there was a special wish of, of Putin and he was born in 2019 so I mean this story, <laughs> I've seen so many meetings in our newspaper when they talk talked about these this children of, of, of uh, Kavayeva, the Putin children, and where are they? Are they in Switzerland? Do they have a Swiss passport or, or whatever? And now they found out a few things. And uh, I think that's, that's quite interesting. Very good. Uh, we're going to just leave it there for a moment. Uh, it's just gone 10.31 here in Zurich, 9.31 in London. Emma Nelson's there with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Around 20 civilians have succeeded in leaving the besieged steelworks in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. They're the first group to leave since Russian 
President Vladimir Putin ordered the vast industrial area sealed off last week. Thousands of people are expected to take to the streets in France as part of the annual May Day protests. It's a week since President Emmanuel Macron was returned to office in the country's elections, but there are warnings there'll be resistance to his pro-business reforms, including a plan to push back retirement age. New Zealand's borders reopened to foreign tourism today. Vaccinated visitors from 60 so-called visa waiver countries will be allowed in, subject to COVID tests. And a wild sea lion called Wendy has been filmed evicting a hotel guest from his sunlight by a pool in the Galapagos Islands. Wendy is seen diving into the pool, swimming a length without coming up for air, and then lumbering up some steps, bumping a holidaymaker from his sun lounger, clambering on and settling down for a snooze. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Thanks very much for that, uh, Emma. You've you've been uh, obviously combing uh, the Latin American press to get the Galapagos story for us? Well, or? the sea lion press, to be honest. <laughs> Swimming press. I mean, the pictures are wonderful. I do do thoroughly recommend them because she's a very, very elegant... Let's just say she's more elegant in the water than she is on land. Uh, But the tourist had absolutely no chance. She even took his towel. Oh, dear. Well, listen, <laughs> we're going to uh, head to... I'm trying to... There's no segue to that. We're just Sorry. going to go to... We're just, that's fine. We're just going to go to Vienna. That's all I can say, uh, because uh, we're going to catch up right now uh, with the editor-in-chief uh, of Die Presse. Uh, Reiner Novak uh, is there for us. Guten Morgen. Guten Morgen. Uh, Reiner, uh, it's been a while since, uh, since we've caught up. Maybe just uh, paint a little picture for us. Uh, Vienna, springtime, uh, a city which is of course, uh, reopened af- after, I guess, compared to uh, where, where we're standing in Zurich, has, has had a bit of a, a, a tricky time and a very sort of tough time uh, in terms of the measures imposed by, by the government. But how does springtime feel in Vienna right now? Well, I think it's similar in Vienna, and um, we we see a lot of we see a lot of parties going on. But the balls are reopening in Vienna. So last night we had the first really big ball in in the Hofburg in the in the castle of Vienna. So so yeah, it's it's a comeback atmosphere in Vienna right now going on. Tourists are coming back, and um, it was was somehow it was a ghost city for month Vienna. So that's 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 a good good feeling in Vienna that it becomes the the old 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 aunt party town <laughs> <laughs> let's say if we were looking at the front page uh, of die presse uh, and uh, and of course also your website as well it's may 1st uh, what does labor day uh, mean uh, in in vienna not just of course uh, for for the, the the police and the security forces but uh, also for uh, for the the people who are out to demonstrate uh, as well yeah, but that's that's not that's not a big issue in, in Vienna. It's not like in Berlin or in other cities. Um, the first May um, Labor Day in Vienna is a very um, it's a red day. It's it's the day of the Social Democratic Party. So they march through the city. And um, just a fun fact about Vienna: um, in Vienna, it's a tradition that the um, um, outdoor pools, uh, city administration, uh, which has a great tradition in Austria, like in Budapest, so people go to their um, outdoor pools um, the whole, over the whole summer. So they always uh, start at the 2nd of May. And why is that? Because the people in Vienna should go to the to the, to the Labour Day march for the Social Democratic Party, so the um, outdoor pools um, open a day later. That's, that's somehow very Viennese. And um, yeah, nice fun fact, I think. And um, the Social Democratic Party of Austria, it's, it's a good day for them because somehow they, they're preparing for their comeback. So um, also another comeback we see um, in the, the two years from now and we have new elections or maybe earlier. 
And for sure, the Social Democratic Party of Austria will be in government again then. Um, maybe they, they will be to, to the uh, position one, the, the chancellor, or second, um, uh, do the junior uh, part of it in a coalition. So, but for sure, they will be in government. And that was one point. And the other part of Labour Day is that we have a lot of refugees in Vienna from Ukraine, and they start working. So that's that's what we, our newspaper did a big story about, yeah. And that was Reiner Novak there, editor-in-chief of Die Presse in Vienna, on a slightly uh, dodgy line uh, on this May 1st Labour Day. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Burley. We're back right after this. Heston's has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest, a quality that's prioritised by award-winning Sydney-based industrial designer David Kayon. He knows that getting a good night's sleep is key to improving his creative process. We have a saying in our household which is, sleep begets sleep. It's a saying that became prominent as we started on our journey of raising children. Essentially what it means is that good sleep is a habit It's a habit that requires effort and perhaps even some ritual. Being well rested is so important to creative thinking and getting the most out of your day that I think it's a habit well worth getting into. Head to Heston's.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps David Kayon and the world's creative and business leaders too. Heston's, be awake for the first time in your life. You're back with Monocle on Sunday uh, with me, uh, Tyler Brule. Uh, I'm very happy to say I'm here here with uh, Emily Isohau and, uh, of course, uh, Christoph Munger uh, uh, as well. Christoph, just um, I want to go back to something that we were we were touching on um, a little bit earlier, and that was coming off the back of uh, of, of the elections. And I wanted to bring you um, in on on the Paris topic because and the French topic in general, because here, you know, here we've had, uh, of course, the current president of the Federal Council uh, was was over in London, uh, but. And, and of course, he wasn't going to go and make any congratulatory remarks this week. But what does this mean for France? Because, you know, you're talking about that notion of neutrality, the importance of, of course, uh, and, and and the role that, of course, the Suisse Romande uh, plays uh, as well. The relationship between Bern and Paris versus the Berlin relationship and, and many others, uh, how, how critical uh, is critical and, and important is it uh, when you think about uh, yeah, who, who we have to be uh, closest with uh, in, in this country? Uh, I think the, the relationship to Berlin is more important than the one to Paris. Still, the one to Paris is is is, is very is very crucial because of uh, not only because of the the, the, the French speaking part of Switzerland, but uh, I mean France is the at least the second important member of the of the European Union. But uh, Switzerland always hopes that the, the Germans help them a little bit to for, they ask for support in, in Brussels because we have, as Emily mentioned before, we have some problems, not just regarding horizon, the Horizon program. But I mean, at the moment, uh, we had a, a big interview on, on the Saturday edition with uh, Mr. Wilfried Kretschmann, the, the head of, uh, of Baden-Württemberg, a very big and important, from an economic point of view, important uh, Bundesland of Germany. 
Germany and which uh, is just across the border from Switzerland. And he, he said that he is going to support uh, uh, Switzerland in, in Brussels, not, for, of course, not just because he likes Switzerland, because there are very strong uh, economic ties between Baden-Württemberg and Switzerland. And his argument, his crucial argument is, is right now, because of the war in Ukraine, everything changes. And uh, so uh, the democracies should stand together instead of uh, getting having problems with with um, with each other the relationship to france is a bit more complicated uh, in particular just recently because we, uh, the swiss government decided to buy uh, an american airplane um, the f15 and and not the uh, the the rafale uh, airplane and and so uh, <laughs> there was an invitation invitation for the swiss president of last year uh, mr parmela and this invitation uh, was cancelled because of uh, this this airplane deal that uh, didn't uh, uh, come, come that they could couldn't close, and so, so the, the relationship between uh, Switzerland and and France is more difficult, even because, of course, Mr. Macron is very pro-European, and Switzerland has some, let's say, uh, so some questions regarding Europe. Emily, sorry. Yeah, no, just maybe perhaps to come in uh, from a Nordic perspective, I think these were presidential elections in France that were the most followed or watched in, in the Nordic countries, at least in, in, in a couple of decades. And not least because of our uh, former discussion on NATO, because Marie Le Pen, of course, is a um, politically has been lukewarm on the idea of NATO and NATO's expansion. So in, in Finnish and Swedish press, there was a lot of concerns of what would happen um, if Le Pen were to be elected um, when it comes to the two countries joining NATO. So that was a big concern, and I think there's a consensus now that there's stability and continuity in terms of foreign policy. But of course, I think the interesting question, to me at least, um, observing French politics, are the parliamentary elections coming up in June. So you have continuity in terms of foreign policy at the moment, but whether that continuity remains when it comes to domestic economic policies, that remains to be seen in June. Emma, I just um, you, of course, uh, are still on your little bit of a, of a Paris high, uh, <laughs> but um, just... I, Again, if you sort of maybe look ahead, and, and I'm also just thinking about, of course, the neighborhood where you sit, uh, we have a very big French bank not far uh, from where uh, you're sitting right now at Modori House, uh, BNP is not far away. You, this relationship, even with with that neighborhood, um, even the building you're sitting in, once upon a time was going to become a French lycée, and we managed to get the building up to ourselves. But how do you see this evolving now that maybe there's a little bit of a settle down uh, and, and where things sort of will, will move from there? Well, in terms of the relationship between the United Kingdom and France, if, if that's what you're referring to, well, last week, uh, Bruno Le Maire, uh, former um, Minister of the Economy, was asked last week, um, so now that Macron is in for second term, does this mean that the Entente will be, uh, the cordial bit of Entente will come back? And, and Bruno Le Maire just immediately said, not a priority. So that was a really strong message to the way that the United Kingdom is going to be dealt with by 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 France at least. Um, one thing that is reliable though is that, that, that when you walk around London at the moment the languages are international and that's a really good sign at the moment. We feel as if people are moving back to London, that the world is opening up despite the fact that if you do want to go and work in another country now that's not part of the European Union you know, if you are not part of the European Union the form filling is absolutely ridiculous. 
What interests me is the way that Macron will now be received on the wider international platform because he performed exceptionally well when he was debating Marine Le Pen about his approach to, to foreign policy. He knows his stuff. Yes, he doesn't have that emotional connection with the French people, but frankly, he's running France like he, like a CEO would. And as a result, it, it feels in very, very solid hands, especially on the international scale. But the Ukrainians have invented a word for for, for, for the way that Macron is working at the moment, which is Macroni. And that is a pejorative term which suggests someone who stands around looking very worried, saying he's going to actually try and fix things, but does nothing. So there's going to be a big jump that Macron has to make on the international stage to make sure that he is effective as he wants to be. Emily, I wanted to ask you, while we were in Paris last week, mm. we were talking about the fact that we want to invent a programme called Emily in Paris. How would you envisage <laughs> that? I'm all for this. Um, if it comes with a, a, I believe fashion is a big thing in this program. So um, a new set of clothing and, and what have you. So yes, let's do it. I've never seen that program. Um, and I don't <laughs> think I really mind too much that I haven't seen that program. Um, the interesting thing is, though, is that, I mean, how, what's your view on the way that, that France is going to position itself internationally? Um, so it's interesting. So um, I think now that Macron got uh, re-elected, uh, what I think needs to be seen is to what extent he will maintain this kind of a rather enthusiastic posture in the inter international arena. Because the cynic could argue that this was part of an election campaign as well, um, prior, uh, kind of prior to the French elections, that he had to um, showcase leadership internationally, um, which also would trickle down politically um, at the level of the presidential elections. But I think he would. Um, and, and again, um, as, as Germany perhaps is still finding its own feet, kind of in a post-Merkel era, it's good to have someone fill that vacuum in Europe. Um, and then again, uh, from a Nordic perspective, having some continuity in Paris is definitely a good thing. Christoph, that felt like a very deliberate dress gesture by Macron last week when he was doing his, his victory walk to the to the podium that he had Ode to Joy playing in the background. He had the, the European flags waving as, as wildly as the French ones and the tricolor. Um, what is it now do we think that Macron will be wanting to do almost to position himself as a new president of France? Yeah, I mean, for, from a, even from Swiss perspective, uh, that is quite critical towards Europe. They, the, the most of the people were very happy to that uh, Madame Le Pen had to be uh, that to had to be avoided, and so they, of course, they hope that uh, they can get on, uh, they can get a better relationship with, with the with the European Union, and of course, they also hope that they can normalize the the. There's some sort of a difficult relationship with France after this uh, uh, airplane deal, yeah. Um, Emma, do you think it's uh, mm. time to... Uh, to <laughs> uh, well, we were chatting just before the programme um, as well uh, about maybe having this sort of rolling sort of, you know, cafe roadshow. I mean, we, we were talking about tractors a little bit earlier, but what about maybe a nice little <laughs> VW camper van? Uh, maybe, you know, uh, our Desi uh, Bendley here in, uh, in Zurich, you know, she could be driving. And you could just sort of every week just sort of, you know, pop up at a nice sort of, you know, cafe somewhere. And, uh, and of course, I could sort of, you know, fly in and out um, as well. I'd happily drive with you, of course, um, as, as well. But I'm seeing a bit of a summer tour, maybe. I'm absolutely seeing a summer tour. Do you mind awfully if we don't do a VW camper van? I've no disrespect for them, but but I think they're a little bit bumpy. Um, and I think maybe maybe things have moved on a little bit. Can we do it on trains instead, Tyler? That would be yeah, great, we, we, good fun. There's, 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 there's less camping stoves to think about. 
This this is true. Probably probably Desi would uh, would be happy uh, about that uh, as as well. Speaking of also taking uh, the program on the road, I'm very happy to say that we're heading to Tokyo uh, right now. Sadly, we're we're flying over Vienna. Uh, we'll we'll catch up uh, with uh, Mr. Novak uh, another time. But our Fiona Wilson uh, is is on the line. Fiona, I'm going to be with you uh, this time next week because it seems like we'll be doing uh, a special edition of Monocle on Sunday from Tokyo. I know. I like the way you say seems, you know, we can never be sure. I feel like we've been isolated for so long. Um, The idea that people are actually coming out here is still pretty remarkable. But yes, that is the plan. Absolutely. So uh, as as it stands at the moment, Emily, I was supposed to, I was going to fly via Helsinki, um, but uh, it doesn't really make sense at the moment because it's not much of a time saving. I mean, once upon a time, uh, you, of course, would be able to fly through Russian airspace. Uh, and of course, there's normally a cost saving uh, yeah. as well. But in, in this instance, might as well just fly from Zurich, stay on the plane because uh, you either have to, yeah, well, in this case, of course, fly south of Russian airspace uh, until you can poke up and cross through China. Yeah, they've lost their comparative advantage when it comes to their business model. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so Fortunately, temporarily. Exactly, <laughs> temporary. So Fiona, anyway, uh, n- next Saturday, uh, after two, who's counting? But it's after 26 months, uh, I'm uh, I'm finally going to be back uh, in Tokyo. Very much uh, looking forward to it. But you're in the midst of a holiday uh, right now. But hopefully it seems like Tokyo is going to be uh, in its groove by the time I'm back. But of course, you're in the midst of Golden Week. Yes, exactly. Not just me on holiday. Yeah, the whole country is uh, is on holiday. Golden week. It's this amazing run of holidays. I mean, you know how in Japan you can't force people to take their holiday allowance. So what they did was say, right, we're going to have a run of public holidays where everybody's off and then nobody needs to feel bad about taking a holiday. Uh, what it means is that everyone's crisscrossing the country at the same time. Um, not quite in, in, on the scale of uh, Chinese New Year in China, but but no, I mean, there were pretty uh, impressive scenes, you know, on the bullet trains and, and at Haneda, actually, the really uh, busy domestic flights. So that, I think that's a good sign for the airlines. Well, on that, I mean, you, you uh, of course, uh, filed a, a, a little note my way. Uh, and of course, this was in the broader public domain as well. But uh, certainly ANA, I'm not, not sure about uh, what, what Japan Airlines, but certainly uh, ANA, the other national carrier in Japan, uh, you know, feeling actually, you know, quite positive uh, in, in terms of how things look, of course, not relying so much uh, on international travel. That will, of course, be part of maybe the bump later in the year. But actually, domestic travel is really coming back in Japan. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Those ANA results. I mean, they were really more positive. I mean, everything was so in the doldrums last year. So it's quite surprising to see them say they think by the end of this financial year, they'll be back in profit. They've they've made a lot of uh, ground on cargo. I think that's become a big, bigger part of the business. And yeah, domestic travel, huge increase um, in the last couple of months. And this is the first golden week. This is the third, you know, where we thought, oh, we're going to have more COVID restrictions, but there are no restrictions at all um, other than the us- usual mask wearing, but traveling between prefectural borders, no problem. So uh, really big numbers on the move this week. Fiona, just to tell us what, what happens moving forward. And do you, do you think that this is a, a bit symbolic? Because, of course, we've been we've been corresponding in the background um, about about masks. And, and of course, you know, the mask, of course, is a very much part of the debate. Also, masks you know, and mask culture has very much always been part of uh, J- Japan, uh, of course, from from a virus uh, perspective and out of out of respect to others, of course, uh, when you might have some type of, of bug. But I think we've also seen in other countries as well that this there is something, of course, it's psychological. It's very symbolic when it goes away. It's 
course, the, you know, the, 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 you know we're, we're not officially out of a pandemic, uh, but it, it does something psychologically to, to a society. What has to happen in Japan from your view? Is, is it a question of the PM sort of saying, okay, look at, we can all calm down. And, and, and I sort of find that hard to, to see a Japanese leader uh, standing up and saying that. So do you think Japan's caught in a bit of, a, of an odd cycle because it's never been, you know, there's never been an official ruling or, or law. Nothing went to parliament to say that you're going to get a fine suddenly if you weren't wearing a mask. So what has to happen? Yeah, I mean, I was giving you a heads up that in a meeting, absolutely, you'd be masked, but not just in a meeting. Everyone is masked everywhere. And I mean, on the street as well. So outdoors, indoors, uh, completely different sort of scenario. And, you know, the funny thing is that it's not a massive debate here, honestly, People don't object to it. And as you say, there's a bit of a mask culture anyway. Hay fever, flu season, people will wear them. But they have, in the last few days, been talking about masks. And, you know, the health advisors on COVID have been saying, look, we will, um, you know, make announcements. People need that reassurance to be told it's okay not to wear a mask. I think at the moment what you've got is a situation where nobody wants to be the person not wearing a mask. So it's a bit of a social situation, a bit of a social pressure to wear a mask. If you don't wear it, you're, you know, you feel very much the odd one out. And I think that what we'll see is that they're saying maybe in the summer, there are no guarantees, but what they're saying is in the summer, it's incredibly hot here in the summer, as you know, and it's not always ideal to have your face masked. And, you know, we had a lot of um, stories about people with heat stroke last year, the year before. So I think they're going to be looking at the summer to making some kind of announcement to say it's okay, at least outdoors, um, not to wear a mask. You'll be, uh, you, will, you will or you won't be surprised. Uh, a, a, a Japanese French gentleman uh, that you know quite well um, said he feels like he's the lone protester as well because he said, uh, he, you know, he said, there's no way I'm uh, wearing a mask outside. Uh, so he, sa- he says, of course, because he's Japanese, but has lived in France. Uh, and uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He said he gets a, a lot of, he said, not sort of angry, aggressive uh, looks. He goes just he gets a lot of being stared down on the street. Yeah, absolutely. It's so unusual. I mean, really, you don't see and I was thinking about this. I was looking around after we'd been talking about masks and I was thinking, you know, really, it's it's just standard now. And and I think it will be a bit of a shock for people to take them off. I think in many ways, you're right that people are used so used to wearing them. It's 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 like if you always wear a hat, if you suddenly didn't wear a hat, you'd feel quite strange. And I do slightly feel that it's become part of people's um, attire. So when they get dressed in the morning, the mask is absolutely part of that uh, equation. Just before we go, um, of course, it hasn't been all holidays. Uh, you were also at, at Orgatech, and I think many of our listeners will know that Orgatech, of course, is a, a bit of a, a global name when it comes to the workplace uh, and, and is a big trade fair devoted uh, to uh, desks and chairs and what you might put in your reception and what might go into your, your canteen. Um, what did you experience, see, and what did, what did you sample, Fiona? Well, what was so interesting was I thought it's the first time it's been in Asia, Orgatech. So that was interesting in itself. But I thought, imagine if this event had been even held five years ago, it would have looked so different. Honestly, it looked a bit like an interiors show, a house interiors show. I mean, there was so much good furniture that you thought I'd be quite happy to have that sofa at home. And and, and the theme was about the hybrid workplace, of course. And I think it really is a sign. And loads of people said this, that now companies have got to show they've got an attractive workplace. You're competing for good people. And a lot of people are not in the office five days a week. So when they do come in, they're, they're being a bit more demanding about what they want from the office. So it's a bit of a rethink. What is the office? And 
the conclusion seems to be it's it's a place where yes people want to focus but also it's a place for for talking and you know it's a bit more of a an interactive place a bit more social so a lot of yeah a lot of sofas chairs beautiful wooden tables i mean it was it was very very interesting and and most of the people exhibiting were japanese so you know yes you had casino and and some other people from outside but mostly it was japanese players and and you just felt this is a this is a big revolution here that you know you know what japanese offices have always been like very much it was always function first comfort not even second way down the list and um that's really changing and you could see some really fantastic design as a result of it Fiona, just before we go, we'll be having a little event as well. So our listeners, uh, certainly across uh, Japan, because it's uh, difficult for others to get in. Uh, Wednesday evening, we'll be rolling out uh, the carpet, uh, opening up some uh, some nice wine, maybe some Norwegian beer as well. Absolutely. 11th of May. Yep. Five to eight. And um, I, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to be sampling the wine that we might be serving. So uh, I'll get stuck into that tomorrow, see if it's any good. But yeah, that's, you know, and it's interesting, the reaction. People saw your newsletter, Tyler, and that you'd mentioned it. And it was interesting. People, we hadn't even sent out the invitations and people were like, uh, can I come to this event? So, good. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, listen, that, that is uh, for all of our Japanese listeners. That is uh, May 11th. It'll be a book signing for our monocle book um, of the Nordics. Fiona, look forward to seeing you uh, next weekend. Just before we go, um, Christoph, I just wanted to talk about uh, another date as well, which comes before the 11th, which is May 9th. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about, uh, of course, what this is going to mean uh, in and around this uh, conflict. Uh, and I just uh, before we go, just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, the rumor, in, especially in Western media, we have, we have to say that uh, Putin might plan to, to, to finish the war in Ukraine on Victory Day, the, the day when they, uh, they celebrate the, the victory over uh, Germany in World War II. Uh, but I think he might have changed his plans because uh, the war doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, go the way he, he probably has planned. And uh, we know that he's very fond of this sort of data and this historic data. But I'm uh, unfortunately, uh, I think we the, the war will not be over on, on May 9th. Cer- certainly not, and and obviously a lot of sort of well, I guess sort of rumor and and, and, and threats around that in terms of what what might unfold. And just Emily, just remind us, uh, talking at the top of the program, uh, we'll probably li- will likely have some type of view you believe from Finland within the next. 12 to 14 days. Correct. So uh, mid-May is the likely. So again, the week of the 16th, that's a Monday, uh, but it might be delayed by a week or so, depending on how long the parliamentary committees take. Okay. Well, of course, uh, you'll be our man uh, on the topic of NATO uh, and, of course, uh, Finland's application to join. We're going to have to leave it uh, there. My thanks to Andrew Tuck in London, Reiner Novak uh, in Vienna with a bit of a dodgy line. Sorry for that. Also, our Fiona Wilson in Tokyo. Our producers today, uh, Emma Nelson and Desiree Bandley. Desiree was also our studio manager here in Zurich. Nora Hall was looking after the audio desk over in London. Uh, I'm Tyler Berlay. We will be uh, around next week from Tokyo, special edition of Monocle on Sunday next week. Enjoy your week. Goodbye.